Would you join me tonight, please, in Ephesians chapter 6? Ephesians chapter 6, as we return to our series, Excavating Ephesians. We are currently examining the armor of God. We have already considered the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And tonight, we'll move on to the sword of the Spirit. But before we do, let's read verses 10 through 18. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Remember that the purpose of the armor of God is so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. And when it comes to the helmet of salvation, the devil knows that there's a battlefield in our mind. And he knows that as your mind goes, you will go. If your mind is in fear, you will go in fear. And the devil knows that if he can get in your mind, he can potentially win a battle in your life. He can't make you do anything. But he can try to influence you through your thought life. How many times has someone got something into their head that was never said, and yet they have convinced themselves that it has been said. If you've ever been in the ministry, you know this is true. It was never said, and yet it's as if it's fact. It's all part of the devil's craftiness. He's subtle. He's deceitful. What we need to learn to do is tear down the fortified areas of wrong thoughts in our life. And it must be done through spiritual warfare because spiritual weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And we know it's spiritual because if we could, if we could have changed ourselves, we would have. But we can't. This is evidenced out there by how many rehab centers there are. How many of those drop out? How many of those repeat? Because we cannot change ourselves. We see this in the number of repeat offenders in our penal system. I remember preaching in the jail and those who would come through a second and third time. We cannot change ourselves. We need a power greater than ourselves. We need God. 
It's His armor, it's His power, it's His might, it's His salvation, and it's His life being lived through ours. And we need the helmet of salvation. We need to develop a godly thought life through God's Word. We need to think on those things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And we do so by wearing the helmet of salvation. Now, I'm sure there's much more we could cover when it comes to the helmet of salvation, but I'll leave that for another time, and I want to move on to the sword of the Spirit tonight. I'll tell you ahead of time that this message will be more of an introduction, and we won't actually get to the application of using the sword of the Spirit so much tonight. If the Lord wills, we'll do that next week, but I can't cover all that I want to in one sermon. This might be a little bit shorter than normal. You'll be happy to hear that. All right, look at verse 17 again. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. For those who care about such things, the Roman soldier's sword was not one of these long swords that we often think about, maybe something from a medieval period where there's this massive sword that you have to wield with two hands. But this sword was really more like a glorified dagger It was used during times of close combat. It's something that they could easily turn about with one hand because remember the Roman soldier would take up the shield in one hand and they would have a sword in the other hand and they would want to be able to easily move this thing around. By the time Paul writes to the Ephesians, the standard equipment that was being issued to the Roman soldiers at that time would have been a blade that was roughly 21 inches long, not including the handle. And if you were to picture close hand-to-hand combat, then you can imagine how a shorter sword or a longer dagger would be more advantageous in battle than this massive sword. These swords were not decorative. They were not ornamental. Uh, It wasn't just something they placed on their side to look cool. But their sword was meant to be used on the battlefield. Now I bring this up because our sword, the Bible, God's holy word, is not to be some decorative piece that we just carry around to look cool. It is not some piece that we set on the shelf as a decoration. It is not something that we just display on a shelf. It's not decorative, but the Bible is a weapon. It's not to be stored in a lavish scabbard and this nice showpiece we have on the wall. But this is how so many will treat the Word of God. Some will leave their church service and their Bible might remain in their car. It might remain on the table somewhere at the house. It may even be to the point of, where did I put my Bible? Come Sunday when we need it. We oftentimes treat the Word of God as if it is just something we use to show our status to everybody else. Something we just take down off the shelf once a week or sometimes twice a week. And we bring it in so everyone can know we're in the Lord's army. But many times you can tell it's never been used in combat. It's just a decorative piece. Now, I'm not suggesting that if your Bible is all neat and clean, then somehow you are not a battlefield Christian. 
I'm that guy that hates to mark in his Bible. I'm a neat freak. Amen. I am president business from the Lego movie. All I am asking for is total perfection. I don't like to see underlined Bibles where it looks like somebody had too much to drink and their underline goes into the next letters above and the words below and you don't even really know what they're underlining and it just makes no sense to me. I'm that guy who takes a ruler to underline anything when I do. I started writing in pencil so that I can erase it to get it just right. So I don't mark mine very often. If you want to know what I'm talking about, you can just look at my wife's Bible. It is an absolute disaster. It's all kinds of marked up. There's words being written that away and this away. And I'll be honest with you, when I look on with her on the times that I'm down there, it is difficult to not lose my mind. It's highlighted all. You got to have a decoder just to understand what's taking place in there. There's even coffee stains, and you don't even drink coffee. So we were walking into the house one day, and I had her Bible bag because I think the kids were young and she was hauling in kids and stuff. And so I had the pack mule going on, and I think it was something to this effect. I can't remember. I reached down and I poured my coffee all over her Bible. It's all in the spine here. You can see it. It's a relic now. And I have been begging her to get a new one ever since. Number one, I felt bad about that. But number two, her Bible is a disaster. It makes me cringe. It distracts me from the text. This is why I do better with a Bible with no notes. Because if it has notes, I'm going to see the reference and I'm going to want to read that reference. I won't be able to resist the temptation. Anybody else like that? It's like, okay, I know it says number one. Do I want to look down and see what number one's telling me? No, I'm going to keep reading. Uh, what does number one say? No, keep reading. Uh, I, okay, what does number one say? Why did I waste my time? So I do better without any of that, but I'm getting off track here. Um, I'm not saying if, you're, if your sword isn't all messy looking that you're not in the battle. I like mine nice and neat. Now, the pieces of armor we've covered thus far have all been protective, and certainly the Word of God can be used defensively. I believe we covered that to an extent when we looked at the belt of truth. That is a protective measure. The truth is obviously the Word of God. And here we can see that the truth of God's Word can be used offensively. This can be used as a weapon as we go. And so, we use the sword to engage the enemy... When we're on the battlefield, we are not just fending off the enemy with the sword, but we are actively confronting the enemy and we fight against the enemy with our sword of the Spirit. The sword is meant to be used in battle. It's not just an item for display. And we see in verse 17 that it is called the sword of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who furnishes us the sword. It is called the Word of God. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Bible is unlike any other book ever written. 
Amen. But how many of you know one of the oldest arguments there is against the Word of God is when the naysayers claim, I don't read the Bible because it was written by men. And their reasoning is, since man is flawed, whatever man produces must also be flawed. But what's interesting is those who say such things will believe other things that men have written. They won't believe the Word of God because they say it was written by man, but they'll believe the theory of evolution that was written by a man. Can I just go ahead and tell you, pretty much everything you know in life is because somebody pinned it down. Those who say such things do not understand that God is more than capable of bringing about a perfect work through imperfect people. The Bible is our proof. These were not perfect men. Biblical churches are our proof. We are not perfect, but we are doing a perfect work. We are doing a divine work. We are doing the work of God. God is able and He has no issues with doing His work through sinful men. And as old and tired as this argument is, it is still one of the most frequently mentioned arguments on why people will not believe the Word of God. And with that reason, they can attach other reasons to add to that, such as the Bible's full of contradiction. Well, we know that because it's flawed, and man is flawed, and therefore the Bible must contradict itself. We hear other things such as there are errors in the Word of God because of man's involvement. On April the 19th, 2018, GQ magazine released an article entitled 21 Books You Don't Have to Read and 21 You Should Read Instead. And wouldn't you know it, the Bible was on the list of books you don't have to read. Jesse Ball, who is an author, wrote this concerning the Bible. Quote, The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. Now that'll preach, but that's a sermon for another time. He goes on to write, Those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sensuous, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned, end quote. And so we see that even in that blasphemous response by this man, the argument is that the Bible is something that man produced. But the truth is, the Bible was not produced by man. It was not authored by man, but it was merely pinned down by man. Holy men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost when they pen the Scriptures. Which means the Bible, the Word of God, it is a God-breathed book. It is Holy Ghost inspired. I haven't checked in years because ever since the Gideons moved away from the King James, I've lost interest in their organization. However, I'm assuming you can still open a Gideon's Bible and in the front you can read a foreword by an unknown author which reads this way, quote, The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the happiness of believers. 
Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here too, heaven is open and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. End quote. That's pretty powerful. What makes the difference? What makes the difference between the world's assessments, such as we read from GQ, and a Christian's assessment like I just read from a believer? What is it that causes that great of a difference? It's the same words. Well, the difference is that one has the Spirit of God living inside, and the other has not the Spirit of God. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit. It is Holy Spirit inspired. It is to be spiritually discerned by those who possess the Spirit of God. Therefore, those who are without the Spirit are not God's child. And they cannot rightly understand all that the Word of God is saying. Now, I believe a lost sinner can read the Word of God and they can understand the message of salvation so long as they are going to the Word of God seeking for salvation, being drawn by the Holy Spirit. But otherwise, the Word of God will be foolishness to the wisdom of this world. The world and even some so-called churches in this day view the Bible as nothing but a relic from yesteryear which once served a purpose for those with less enlightened minds than we find in 2020. Those in centuries past needed something for their weak minds and the Bible served that purpose, but it really has no value for today except maybe some historical value, maybe some literary value. And the idea is just as the automobile is Replace the horse so something better has come along in life that has replaced the Bible. The Bible may have been good for those times in that time period. It might have been useful then, but it no longer serves the same purpose in our day because we feel like we have something better. And it amazes me that churches are promoting that. Just tonight I was driving in, I heard two sermons on the way in. One I can listen to on the way in. The other I got stuck in Arby's drive through Both sermons on the radio, well-known preachers you probably know. Both of them preached a sermon. One preached a sermon on, are you too busy? And the other preached a sermon on, do you have the right, or this is how you can have the right kind of friends. And throughout both the sermons, not one of them mentioned the need of Christ. You see, what has happened is we have slowly but surely 
tweak God's message down to what's going to make you happy in life. Are you too busy? Let me give you some practical helps. We act like the old message is something for the thing, the people of yesteryear. And so the Bible has been pushed into this corner of a museum because it is thought it really no longer has any relevancy for the 21st century. This has been proven in our society by our witnessing of the world tearing down the Ten Commandments in public places, in governmental places. We've seen it happen in my lifetime. And the reason that our nation, listen to me now, the reason that our nation, the reason that our churches, the reason that people are becoming dead to the things of God and weak in the things of God is because we are forsaking the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, it's the Word of God that is quick. It is alive. It is the Word of God which is powerful. And when we don't have the Word of God in our lives, in our churches, in our nation, we can expect the opposite to happen. We can expect deadness and weakness when we leave off the Word of God. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces it divides. It discerns. It knows our thoughts. It knows our intents. This is why some can get so angry after hearing the Word of God preached. What's happening? The Word of God is piercing the heart. But this is why also some will get saved under the same message that ticked this person off. This person got gloriously born again. It's the same preaching. It's the same word. The Word of God pierces differently to different people. It's absolutely amazing to me how I can step down from this pulpit after preaching to this congregation and I can get one text over here that's absolutely mad at me and sideways and all wrapped up and I can get one over here that says, thank you so much, that was a great message. It's the same message. Preached to the same group of people. Two different responses. Isn't that amazing? And it's because this is the living Word of God. It speaks to where we are at. Some may like the message. Some may not. Some will be thankful. Some will be mad. And what we learn as children of God, after spending time in the Word of God, is that this holy book understands us before we understood it. It told us we were sinners. It told us who we were apart from God. It knows us before we understand it. Now, how do we know this to be true? How is it that we have arrived at the conclusion that this book is alive? That this book is divine? Well, it wasn't through some clever apologetics. It wasn't through some gifted preacher. Those areas will certainly help to solidify some areas. But we know this to be true because of the Bible itself. Now, that's just going to irk people that don't like the Bible. 
We know from getting the Word of God into our hearts and minds that it is truly a weapon, that it is really the sword of the Spirit. The only proof we have is the Word of God itself. How do you explain this to somebody? You don't. We take it by faith. We have proof because we have lived it. We have seen it. We know. And there is no higher authority than the Word of God because it is given to us by God. Therefore, where else can you go to substantiate that it's truth? The Bible says in Psalm 138 and verse 2, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. If we only understood the importance that God has placed on the word of God. How do we come to believe Psalm 119.89, which says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. We learn this is true because as we live the Word of God, we begin to understand that His principles and His precepts are timeless. And we learn that the Word of God is always on time because it is timeless. It is the Bible which proves the Bible to be true. It is through warfare that we learn the effectiveness of God's Word in battle. It is by taking up the Word of God and wielding it that we become convinced of its power and our need of the sword of the Spirit in our life. But you got to get in the battle. You will not know its effectiveness if all you do is place it at your side as some sort of decoration, as some kind of status as some kind of proof that you're in the military of God's army. This is why, because Liberty Baptist Tabernacle has proven this to be God's Word, this is why we gather together on Sunday mornings, on Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights. That which makes us a cult and off the rails. What are we doing? We're simply gathering around God's Word. And we do this throughout the year. We do this during special meetings throughout the year. This is why we say, take your Bibles and join me in book, chapter, verse. We do so because we know this is the living Word of God. We do so because we have learned that it is the sword of the Spirit and that it is more powerful than any other book that is out there. We'll talk more about all this next week, but do you understand what a privilege it is tonight to be able to say to take your Bibles and join me? Do you understand that in the 6,000 year history of the world, this has only been possible over the last 500 years? Maybe we could rightly say 400 years by the time it was affordable and produced enough. No pastors before that time could say, Take your Bibles and join me. We have our own Bible. You can follow along with what the pastor is saying about God's Word. Hallelujah. We're not some cult. Isn't that right? We're not up here speaking in Latin. You have the 
written word of God. You have the mind of God on paper to mankind. We are blessed. Now, Wednesday night Christians, are you taking up the sword of the Spirit? Is it your weapon? Are you using it properly? Maybe better stated is, have you learned to use it? Have you learned how to attack? Have you learned how to wield it? Well, if the Lord wills, next week we'll talk about how we use the Word of God as our sword. But for tonight, I just want to encourage you, get in the Word of God. It does no good sitting in your car and laying on a shelf. Read it, memorize it, meditate it, study it. Let's pray.